Lord God, may the words that we share this morning bring honour to your name. Might we reveal your truth uh, through this conversation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us for the sermon, if you're watching this back later, there's no sermon today. I'm not sure how generous a parish can be, Bishop, to say, come and you don't even have to prepare a sermon, but we're very grateful uh, you're prepared to answer and talk about uh, some of the big issues that come out of this uh, gospel today. Um, for those of you who heard my sermon last, year, last week, um, it was brilliant, but um, you don't need to tell me, I'm, I'm humble enough, uh, but... I did share that I have a particular personality trait that's drawn to Mark's gospel. I like to get the most amount of done, done in the least amount of time, and Mark gets the story of Jesus shared with the least amount of words, which I love. But different people like different books of the Bible and different gospels, but I was thinking, Bishop, what, what draws you to Mark's gospel? Um, I too like Mark's gospel, which of course, as you know, is the right answer in this case. <laughs> Uh, what, where would we go if I said otherwise? Um, but I really like it for a similar reason to you. I like it's very condensed and short. And by the way, if you actually sit down this afternoon, if you've never read Mark's Gospel, you can open up a Bible, you can get a Bible online, and you can read it in an hour and a half. It's that short. Um, but it's also got some real curiosities in it. You've got what's called the Messianic Secret, where seems to hide his identity a bit. You've got the young man running away naked, uh, the passion, and you've also got what is frankly one of the stranger endings of any of the Gospels. But there's another reason for I, I love Mark's Gospel. It's widely considered to be the very first Gospel committed to paper, you know, to be written down. And Matthew and Luke are thought to be borrowing from Mark. So there's something feeling like getting close to the original in getting close to something precious in reading Mark's gospel. As um, you said, he doesn't waste any time. He gets straight to it. It's, it's yeah. action-packed. And in this first chapter, we're right in the midst of Jesus' public ministry, and it's only just begun. He starts with, uh, we saw last, last week, the, um, the cleansing of the man with uh, the, the unclean or evil spirit or Exorcism is the fancy church word for that. Um, but this week we see a healing. And what strikes me about that is that Jesus, right as he begins his public ministry, is meeting the needs of the community. And, and those who are on the margins that might not necessarily be part of the religious connected. I'm wondering, particularly with your view of church as a bishop, how do you feel that the modern church should place itself or be placed to be present to deal with the needs of the wider community and not just itself as church? Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, you're right. As you open up Mark's Gospel, you're very quickly into a whole load of action. You actually have healings and exorcisms and teachings all within the first few chapters, and they, they come really thick and fast. And I agree, I think, with your premise of your question. I think we've, got a, we've become captive, in a sense, to our buildings. Um, you might tell from my voice that I come from the other side of the planet. And I used to live in Scotland. That's uh, where my children were born. And there in Scotland, you can find what are known as Celtic crosses. 
these beautiful carved crosses. And they're actually where the community gathered out in the... I think it's an amazingly daring thing to do in Scotland, where Scottish summers are not much better than Scottish winters. <laughs> but we, in a sense, have become very caught inside our buildings. And I actually think we need to turn our buildings almost inside out. Um, the job I had before being Bishop of the Southern Region was to be a dean of a cathedral down in Victoria, dean of Bendigo. And the Bendigo Cathedral had been shut. It was actually shut for nine years. And so our job was, in a sense, to be church without a church building. And I ended up doing everything I could out in the community. We would do Ash Wednesday services outside. We would give pancakes away on Shrove Tuesday outside. We would give on Palm Sunday. I'm just doing the Easter sequence. But we do, even did um, Advent things outside the church. But more than that, we would try and serve our communities. You've got some marvelous things going on here, but the trick is to get marvelous things going on out there. And I want to pray for your blessing in doing that. Mm. Thank you. Um, there's another element to, I guess, Jesus' first uh, minist public ministry, and, and is that, that there's a sense of, I guess, the supernatural about what he's doing. Um, I know you share an interest. I'm pretty sure that you recommended a book about the shaping of the, the Western mind to me a couple of years ago, which I dutifully read. Every book, book a bishop recommends you have to read as a priest, of course. Uh, and and um, more recently, over the break, I finished um, Tom Holland's Dominion. If oh, good for you. If you uh, get a chance to read that, it's, it's, it's a brilliant book. Um, but, but I've become interested in, the, in, particularly more recently, in the way that the Western world looks at what's going on, particularly in a season of pandemic. And I've, I've noticed, particularly when it comes to the miracles and the supernatural that we see in Scripture... We've had a propensity to try and rationalise and explain it. And I hear stories of the developing world, and they seem, at least to me, they seem more open and expectant of the miraculous. And I wonder what your thoughts are when you encounter the miraculous in Scripture and how we, I mean, we can't avoid it, we are a Western world church, yeah. and how do we approach uh, handling the miraculous through Scripture? There's nothing like being asked an easy question on a Sunday morning, is there? Um, I'm going to tread carefully with this one for reasons that talking not carefully, we can get confused and they can, they can be hurt in it. I agree with you. We are, we are a deeply westernized church. And we are the inheritors of immense gifts of the kind of the enlightenment in a way. And all the benefits that science have given us and I speak basically as a former physics teacher. But you think of how we trust science when we used to fly on planes. Uh, I think I'm going to need to borrow a microphone, aren't I? We trust science when we use microphones, whether we like it or not. And we trust science, I think, especially in this pandemic. You think of the immense achievement of coming up with vaccines within a year. But the consequence of, you might say, the process of modernity has been what some sociologists call disenchantment. Max Weber first used that term. A sense 
of loss, of the miraculous, of the kind of the fact that this world for others in history was enchanted. Now that hasn't quite happened in the developing world. And we're left, I think, with a bit of a, a fix where I'm going to actually challenge you in a way. We read of miracles in the Bible, but I'll be honest, I have never seen someone walk on water. I'm 55 years old. What, am I, what does my experience tell me? I've never seen someone take a coin out of a fish. I've never seen someone actually do a kind of a miraculous healing. I, if I got something wrong with me, I go to doctors. So the real challenge for someone like me, who's deeply Western, is what do we make of the miracles? And I've found as I've got older, the more I understand that the Gospels are about Jesus. And actually, if you open up Mark's Gospel, the very first thing is, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Gospels are about Jesus, and so are the miracles. And you've got to start, I think, not, you don't have to, but it's good to read the miracles and say, what are they signifying about Jesus, and what do they tell us about the world? Um, they, they are stories imbued with meaning. And I think that's a more fruitful way for us to approach them. Now, I dare say for some of you here, that is a very unsatisfactory answer. <laughs> but I'm being as honest as I can about just how to read these, this text and may it be fruitful for you. One of the things that I've certainly found helpful for me has been also to, to, to actually not miss the small miracles. We read about the big miracles, uh, but um, if you think about our daily lives, if we're always searching for um, the, the big and, 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 and the obvious, it's easy to miss the small. And, and I know certainly my experience is a, is a life full of smaller miracles. Like you, I haven't seen anything like anybody walking on water. But I think when we have our expectations set because we're reading scripture in a way that we're expecting it, the same thing to happen to us rather than pointing us towards God, we miss the miracle that God created us and God's given us the ability to love. And in a pandemic, we can gather together. All of those things are miracles uh, that many of us in this world are lacking without. Um, and as you look and pay attention to what's going on, I think it's easy to get overwhelmed by life because of its busyness. And so you do miss those small things that are happening. And you do see in this passage, Jesus takes himself away and out of the public view. And it's something that I find very difficult to do because of the way that I'm wired. So I'm looking for some advice from you, my bishop. How have you been able to successfully take yourself away from the busyness to be able to identify the small and the God at work in the world without being caught by the busyness? And how important has those times of quiet prayer become for your sustenance and daily life? Thank you. I think Stuart knows the irony of asking me that question. 
Um, I, too, uh, get easily caught up in the busyness of life. Um, Anglican clergy are asked to say offices. Now, they think, what the heck is an office? These are set prayers that are regulated for morning and evening. And it's a relic of the times when, you know, there were uh, the religious, the monks and the nuns, and they say a lot more prayers. But in the Book of Common Prayer, there's morning prayer and evening prayer, and as clergy were asked to say both. I'm honestly pretty good at saying morning prayer. I'm not so good at saying evening prayer because of just busyness of having family and children and so on. And I find that using a set pattern of prayer grounds me in ways that other forms of prayer haven't. And certainly, actually, in times of my life that have been really tough and I've not wanted to pray, having a set form of prayer has really helped me to pray. But I don't try and waste the evenings totally. Um, I've tried in recent years to meditate. I, I started this when I was actually in my old job in Bendigo. And I went to a friend and said, look, I'm going to try and start to meditate. And, and he said, what are you going to try and do? And I said, I'm going to try and sit and meditate for 20 minutes. And he burst out laughing. And he said, look, I know you well enough. Start at five minutes and, <laughs> and start working up. And I'm pleased to say I can now, in a sense, sit quietly for 20 minutes. I was actually with a group of clergy the other day, and uh, I mentioned this. And someone yelled out and said, oh, I'm really good. I think it's great. I do nothing. I sit down, I put on Netflix, and I'm fine. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sitting down, in a sense, closing your eyes and staying awake. And that's an achievement and just breathing gently for 20 minutes. In a sense, taking what God gives, kind of comes in your mind and casting it to God. But I find that, mm. and, and, that and also clergy are asked to take retreats, and crucially we're asked to take days off, something that clergy are not always good at. Forgive me, Father, for our <laughs> sin. I did take a day off this week. No, it's, um, um, one of the things that we see Jesus do, and, and particularly, as you say, clergy are, are called to be good models and, and good examples, um, and so we are called to, to, to model that, that discipline of quietness and reflection as Jesus did. Um, but, but we see Jesus here uh, do something that I, I would hope you don't want your clergy to do, is that go from place to place to place to place very, very quickly and not stay there very long. Um, I know bishops have a, a difficult job of trying to fill vacancies, but as a bishop, in a lot of ways, you model Jesus' itinerant ministry by, by not staying in the one place. You go from church to church to church. What has that taught you about the body of Christ? Um, it's another fruitful question. Uh, I was a parish priest for a number of years. I think it's getting towards oh, 20 um, before becoming a bishop. And one of the things about being a parish priest is you get to know your church really well. You don't get to see others. And suddenly for me, I was consecrated a bishop and I have 49 parishes to get round each year. And I am really delighted at the diversity of our parishes in the southern region. We have parishes that are firmly and consciously Anglo-Catholic, where the priest wears a beretta. <clears throat> I've never worn a beretta. I've never actually kind of seen one up close until I went to that church. 
But equally, you go to other churches that are self-consciously and confidently evangelical. And there, the service will be quite simple, but they'll have a really, you know, 30, 40 minute sermon, which is deeply exegetical. It means they're kind of digging into the text of the, the Bible. Yet, and we've also got churches all the way across the spectrum from one to the other. But what I find in all of them, and this is going to sound rather pie, and I don't mean it pie, is there are people who are determined and conscious and willing to follow Christ and to be kind of faithful Anglicans. And that, I think, is amazing. Um, we have wonderful people in our churches. Hmm. I, uh, I know that Jesus in this passage leaves to go and to proclaim a message. And so you've left Carindale, where you live, this morning, and you've come to us to proclaim a message. Um, as we close, can we give you a moment to proclaim a message to the church at Rabina Mermaid Beach? I have been fortunate to be down here in the past, and I know you somewhat, and uh, you're my area dean down here, so I get to see you a fair bit. Um, I'm conscious that there is huge variety in our diocese. We have churches that are struggling. They might not look on the outside that they're struggling. The buildings might be looking great. But inside, they've struggled with the pandemic. They've struggled to get their congregation recovered from the pandemic. And consciously, they've lost their young people. You, for whatever reason, and it's, I guess there's a lot of thankfulness in this, have come through this season or coming through this season stronger than many other churches. And one of the things this diocese has done is declare you as a resource church, a church that's to be a blessing to the churches around you. And I want you to be, I want all of you to be conscious of that to be a blessing to the community around you and to be a blessing to the churches that are around you. And that's going to be a real challenge in the year ahead. Well, can I pray? Lord, we thank you that you have called us as a church and you have blessed us to be a blessing. Might we hear this message proclaimed this morning might we see the example of Jesus and the opportunity for this community. And might we become a gift to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I invite you uh, to continue to worship with us?